Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. If you've been listening to our podcast uh, for any uh, duration over the last year, you will know that we've had a series of podcast interviews and special presentations on this anniversary year, 1963, witnessed the horrific bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church in the height of the civil rights era. And we've looked at this from different angles and interviewed some eyewitnesses to that event and others. Well, today, this is a part of that same series. And today I have the pleasure of welcoming to the Beeson Podcast a friend and colleague here at Sanford University, Bill Nunley. Bill is the Senior Editor and Director of Public Relations at Sanford University. He's been here for more than three decades, does excellent work, and has for years and years. And he's written a book we want to talk about today. So we're delighted to welcome you to the Beeson Podcast, Bill. Thank you, Dean George. Now, the book is about one of the most conspicuous, notorious, and unforgettable characters who was in the very thick of the conflict over civil rights in Birmingham, Alabama. His name, we know him as Bull Connor. Bull Connor was the commissioner of police in 1963 and very much involved in the Children's March. You've written a biography of Bull Connor. It's a biography that continues to garner attention, though it was written some years ago. Currently, on the New York Times bestseller list, there's a book entitled David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. And he quotes you and cites you as a source for his chapter on Bull Connor. So um, thank you for doing this book, and tell us how you got interested in Bull Connor to start with. Well, I'm from Birmingham, and I was uh, in the 1970s working on a Master of Arts degree at Sanford University, where I also uh, worked. And I needed to do a master's thesis, but I very badly needed to do something that I could research locally. Well, nobody had uh, had done a book per se or a, or a manuscript on Bull Connor. He had been a part of numerous studies on civil rights, of course, and so I decided to see that I, if I could fill this void, and uh, uh, was able to uh, to get my thesis approved and get my degree, and then uh, conferred with the University of Alabama Press, and they accepted it. And after some years of uh, editing and rewriting, the book came out in 1991. Mm-hmm. Now, tell us a little bit about Bull Connor's background. Who was he as a person? Where did he come from? Connor uh, was born in Selma, Alabama, in 1897. His mother died when he was about eight years old, I think, and, and he spent a lot of his early life traveling around the country with his father, who was a railroad telegrapher. This was a craft that he taught uh, his son, Theophilus, Theophilus Eugene Connor. That was his real name. That was his real name, right. During the course of uh, the next few years, uh, as he became a young man, he had telegraphy jobs around the country, uh, but he was a sports fan, and he sort of wandered into the field of sports broadcasting because he could take the, at that time, sports broadcasting uh, consisted in many cases of 
telegraph reports being sent to broadcasters who would then relay the action uh, of the game somewhere at another at another point on the radio. And so Bull Connor became known as the voice of the Birmingham Barons. That's a baseball team. That's right. The Birmingham Barons uh, were the uh, Birmingham's professional baseball team that played at Rickwood Field, which is uh, still in existence today. In fact, I think the, the oldest professional baseball park in the nation, uh, along with uh, Boston's ballpark. And so Connor made a name for himself, and uh, then uh, some few years later decided that he would try his hand in local politics. And he used that name identification very effectively to uh, to uh, be a success in that regard. So the bull, tell us about how the bull came to be, that name. Well, there's several stories. One is that at that time, one of the Birmingham morning newspapers ran a front page column by another writer. I think it was Dr. E.B. Bull Connor. And so... Bull, the Bull Connor that we know <laughs> uh, began to, uh, his friends began to call him that just as a kind of uh, uh, joke. And he liked the sound of that. And I think that that is initially how he, how he came to be known as Bull Connor. And it was such a good uh, uh, nickname and trademark for him, uh, particularly once he got on the radio and then into politics that, that he just held on to it. And in fact, uh, in later years, he always signed his correspondence, Eugene Bull Connor. Now, you mentioned his moving into politics in Birmingham, Alabama, at the local level. So what was his platform? What was his party? What was the special interest that he had in politics? At that time, it was pretty much uh, the uh, Solid South, the Democratic Party. And so he was a Democrat, but uh, uh, he was a person that prided himself on being very transparent with voters when he was elected to the city commission in 1937, one of the first things he did was literally have his door removed from his office so he could say he always had an open door. An open door. (laughs) Right. And he did. That didn't mean that he told everything that went on in his office, obviously. But uh, before he did that, he he, uh, served one term uh, as a state legislator in Montgomery. And... uh, befriended uh, a local attorney who was very well-known local attorney, Jim Simpson. And Simpson uh, was the state senator from Birmingham. At that time, there was one state senator, and there were several legislators. And so Connor befriended Simpson, and during the course of their time together, uh, he became kind of a, a mentor for Bull Connor in the area of politics. Uh, in terms of Connor's uh, platform or, or, or program, uh, he simply wanted to do as, as good a job as he could uh, in his area of making the uh, departments, uh, all, all the departments he was uh, responsible for, which also included the fire department. And, and even though Connor had never uh, actually formally graduated from high school, he was also the head of the Birmingham library system. Wow. Uh, and and so he just simply wanted to uh, do as good a job and to listen to uh, the voters and he he was very popular and uh, yeah. and so uh, that was his basic he that was his basic pro, uh, program uh, nothing uh, high sounding that I could uh, determine that he ever actually wrote down or presented. 
And now it's interesting because he was elected in 37, and of course 63 is quite a bit later in the 20th century. So uh, there's one incident you talk about in your book I think that would be interesting for our listeners to know. Uh, There was a period of time when he was sort of out of politics, uh, and he was actually accused of an affair and tried for it publicly. Tell us a little bit about that episode. He was serving uh, his fourth term, I believe, as the Commissioner of Public Safety, uh, having been elected without a runoff in each of his uh, terms in 41, 45, and uh, again in 49. And indeed, uh, about halfway through the uh, 19th, through his uh, uh, term, he was uh, found visiting his secretary at a local hotel and was tried for this because it was uh, against the law to uh, for a man and a woman that weren't married to be in the same hotel room. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I, I, when did that law cease to be uh, something against uh, with, for which people could be tried? Well, uh, it was a law that I think came into being uh, during World War II, and it was simply uh, uh, an anti-prostitution measure. Oh, yeah. Which Connor supported, I might add. (laughs) And he was tried for that locally. Simpson was able to uh, uh, use his influence to get the law dismissed, disbanded. And so essentially the case was thrown out of court in the Alabama Supreme Court. And I'm not sure exactly when the law itself went off the books. Yeah. But that was a precedent. Now, this put him out of politics for a while. He just had the baggage he didn't want to deal with in the public arena. Tell us how he came back again to be the police commissioner into the 1960s. He weighed whether he should run again after that uh, incident in the hotel. Actually, I think until the last day of the before qualifying. And uh, he decided that, he, as you say, the baggage was too much, and so he would not run in 1953. Well... He owned a service station out in Avondale, and so he went to, to be the, uh, uh, the manager of his own service station. But uh, he had had so much of politics that he just couldn't stay away, and so uh, a couple of uh, races came uh, open that he was able to run for, and, and he lost. He lost uh, a race for commissioner of public works, uh, which was not an area that he knew much about. Uh, and uh, and so as 1957 uh, came along, uh, he decided he would run. As I say, this was the third time that he would have run since his uh, since his decision not to run after the uh, after his fourth campaign. Had he lost that election, and it was very close, uh, he probably would have been finished in local politics, or at least for a time. But he managed to uh, to win by a few votes. In 1957, by this time, his issue was the segregation issue because uh, during the 1950s, as we know, this uh, was, a, was a paramount issue in the South and indeed in, in a lot of the country. So uh, this brings us into the connection of the early civil rights movement in Birmingham and particularly Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which he led at the time. Before coming to Birmingham, there had been some efforts by Dr. King and this uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference to really oppose segregation in Albany, Georgia. 
and it didn't come to very much. And that, in a way, was a a prehistory for what happened in Birmingham. Could you say a little bit about the Albany situation and then what brought them to Birmingham? Well, I think that the feeling was that the Albany campaign was tried to do too much and went into too many directions uh, with various leaders. And uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, stalwarts of the uh, civil rights uh, uh, campaign, Ruby Hurley, said that the uh, Albany was a success only if the uh, plan was to go to jail mm-hmm. because they didn't really accomplish very much in Albany. Uh, and so the King uh, ultimately withdrew and began to think, look at other, uh, look in other directions. And of course, one of those directions was the direction of Birmingham because uh, Bull Connor's uh, stance on segregation was so well known, and they they thought that perhaps opposition to to uh, Connor would uh, would help the cause nationally, which, as we know, it did. In my reading of this, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure I'm right, but it it seems to me that initially. Leading up to the Children's March, uh, Bull Connor was restrained uh, and really tried not to be provocative, but somehow lost that cool, you might say. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the Children's March and Bull Connor's attitude and response to the civil rights uh, protesters. Leading up to the Children's March, which was in, uh, I think, the first week in May of 1963, the King had begun some uh, demonstrations in early April, and they were sort of sporadic. And uh, at one point, I think uh, Connor had the police bring out the uh, police dogs just as a show. And not very much uh, was accomplished uh, in terms of doing anything about the segregation laws that Birmingham had. Uh, and so. King decided that uh, one of the things he could do was something dramatic, and, and he he marched. But you had to have a permit to march to in these demonstrations uh, issued by the city, i.e., Bull Connor. And uh, so Connor was not necessarily interested in issuing very many of these permits uh, for the uh, demonstrators to march. But the demonstrators marched anyway. As a result, they were arrested. Uh, that's why King went to jail on Good Friday before Easter in April of 1963. And this was the occasion for the letter from Birmingham jail. That's right. He wrote the letter uh, during the course of his stay in the Birmingham jail, which was eight days, and, uh, and ultimately decided to make bail and come out, which he could. The hope had been that contributions and and uh, good feelings about uh, the fight against segregation would come out of this, and they probably did, but King felt like he could do more coming out. And uh, that's when he issued the invitation for the uh, school students to join uh, the campaign, and of course that became the turning point. Yeah. Now, the, take us through that day in which uh, we, we think about Kelly Ingram Park, the dogs attacking the children, the fire hoses. Well, there were several several days when the crowds got larger and larger, and ultimately Birmingham businessmen could see this as a disaster for the city. And they weren't interested in making the stamp against segregation that Bull Connor represented. 
And so they were negotiating at this time with King, trying to bring this uh, situation to an end. And the, the way they could do that was to um, agree to do away with some of the segregation measures that, uh, that the city had had in place for long periods of time. And so after about, oh, three or four days of these very dramatic demonstrations out on the street of Birmingham, which were covered by media from all over the, the nation and indeed the world, uh, sending out these images of people, of young children being swept down the streets with powerful fire hoses, the city agreed that they, this, uh, they would acknowledge uh, King's points and began to work in the direction of doing away with the, uh, some of these uh, local uh, uh, segregation ordinances, such as the not being able to drink out of the same water fountain or sit at the same cafe the uh, counter. You, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so this is, is how the, uh, the demonstrations came to an end. It also mobilized President Kennedy to do something about, uh, to follow through on his campaign promise to do something about getting rid of uh, segregation. So this became the trigger for the 1964 Civil Rights Act. It did. Of course, Kennedy was killed later on that fall and wasn't able to sign that legislation, but he he initiated it and and Lyndon Johnson uh, wound up signing it. In your book, you quote President Kennedy as saying, the civil rights movement should thank God for Bull Connor. He's helped it as much as Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> right. <laughs> Colorful quote. Yeah. So in a way, um, Bull Connor was the perfect adversary, as you say, for the civil rights movement. And I wonder if he ever recognized that his staunch opposition to desegregation had actually furthered the cause of civil rights. Well, I suspect that he did recognize it. I don't know that that I came across uh, during the course of my research any uh, documentable statements that uh, that he that he would have uh, uh, said about the uh, about the uh, the situation. You know, uh, during the course of this, Birmingham was also undergoing a change of government uh, situation in which uh, the city had had decided the way to get this was in late 1962, prior to the 63 campaign, that the way to get rid of Bull Connor, who was so firmly ensconced, was to change city government. And so the city actually did change in uh, November of 1962 to the present mayor council form of government uh, from the city commission, which would be was uh, a a system in which there were three commissioners, one of which was Connor. And that did get rid of Connor. And it did get rid of Connor, but the uh, Connor and his other two commissioners sued to keep their jobs for the next two years. They felt they were owed that. So that for a period of time in 63, Birmingham had two governments. And uh, the uh, uh, finally, uh, very shortly after the uh, monumental week of the first week in May, the Alabama Supreme Court, which was handling this case of deciding which of the governments is the legal government of Birmingham, the city, if, you, if, you, if the city owed you a bill during this period when, when they had two governments, you wanted to get a check from each one of them because you didn't want to take a chance that the, that the court <laughs> would come through and decide on the other one and then you'd be left without uh, remuneration. But uh, the, the uh, state Supreme Court did decide in favor of the uh, mayor council um, form of government. And uh, that uh, is what 
uh, that's when Bull Connor officially left office after 26 and a half years as a commissioner. Now, he went on to hold a statewide office and remained fairly active during the last decade of his life. He was, um, at, in 1964, he ran for the Public Service Commission of Alabama. And uh, it was uh, considered uh, an upset that he was able to win, but he, he was and served two terms as president of the Alabama Public Service Commission. And he ran for a third term, but was beaten by um, uh, another candidate in 1972. And then he, he died uh, the next year, 1973. What was his relationship with Governor George Wallace? Well, I think he supported Wallace and Wallace's views uh, while Connor was still alive before Wallace changed his views, as we know later, uh, on segregation and, and uh, segregation forever, et cetera. He actually ran against Wallace for governor in 1962 when there were a number of uh, candidates, but Wallace, as we know, uh, won that race. Uh, but he was, he was uh, very much a supporter of George Wallace, I think, during, the, during this year. And what about his uh, religious views? Well, he was uh, a member of the Methodist Church. I don't know uh, that he was particularly active. I think he he went to church regularly, um, uh, something that uh, politicians do. I don't know that that's what motivated him to do that, but uh, that's what motivated him to do a lot of things. But that was, uh, I, I don't know that he was a Sunday school teacher, and I don't know that he did much preaching, although he was, uh, he was never lost for words. Mm-hmm. Was there any connection between him and the Ku Klux Klan at the time? Well, I think he knew Klansmen. I suppose there was a tacit understanding that Klansmen obviously were, were segregationists. They were fought, as we know, violently against integration. I think Connor sort of tried to stay clear of any public ties with the, with the group. It wouldn't have been politically advantageous to, to parade that if he I had think, such ties, yes. I suppose. Well, uh, Bill, you you have lived in you're a native of Birmingham, I, I am. believe. I am. You've lived here a long time, and you've seen a lot happen. And I wonder if, looking back on your own life and the life of Birmingham, and a person who's written what is, I think, the definitive biography of Bull Connor, if you could just reflect a little bit on the changes that have happened in Birmingham as you see your own uh, history swirling around these events as a young person. You were 63. You were a young person in Birmingham. And you've seen a lot that's changed in form of government, but also social and other attitudes. Just reflect a little bit, if you would, on the history of Birmingham during your own life. Well, the city has made such great strides in terms of race relations. And uh, that, I think, is perhaps uh, the most significant social uh, change that, that, I, that I've seen. I uh, was working at the Birmingham post Herald as a college student in 1961, the day of the uh, infamous Freedom Rider attack on uh, where the burning bus uh, occurred out between Birmingham and Anniston. And so there was a, a photograph, a famous photograph, made in the uh, Trailways bus station in Birmingham of a Klansman beating an integrated group of bus riders that had just come into to downtown Birmingham. Well, post-terrell photographer named Tommy Langston shot that photograph, and it was nominated for a, a Pulitzer Prize. And Tommy worked for the post-terrell and, and came back 
from shooting that picture after having been beaten up by the same Klansman when the strobe light went off, they turned and saw him over there taking pictures and attacked him. He came back to the post herald three blocks, and and I saw this fellow come in. I wasn't quite sure who he was because I was only in my first week, and I, but I could see that he had been beaten up, that his clothes were torn, his camera was was uh, smashed, and I thought, my goodness, what have I gotten myself into as a as a young uh, sports writer for the Birmingham Post Herald working. Yeah. Um, so I think about uh, that moment and then how far the city has come during, uh, during the intervene, intervening years. You know, the city did make great progress after the, uh, after the 63 demonstrations. And in the late uh, 60s was, a, was an all-American city mm-hmm. and made, uh, uh, made some very real strides in, in that regard. And so it's amazing to reflect on what uh, what happened. I might add that Tommy Langston, I interviewed Tommy for uh, the Bull Connor book about 10 years after, or no, uh, maybe a couple of decades afterwards. And he was very gracious. I didn't know him very well, though at times when he came to cover Sanford events as a photographer for the Post Herald, I would work with him because that was those were part of my duties. And uh, Tommy died last week. Oh. At the age of 89, and, I, wow. and I, so I thought about all of those times and uh, what they represented. Let me ask you one final question, and it's kind of an unfair question. It's a hard question. When you look at Bull Connor, is there anything redemptive you see in the life of this person who was surely a villain in so many ways? And uh, how should we look back on Bull Connor, taking everything into consideration? Well, Connor was representative of many, many people in the white voters of Birmingham, certainly, and that they were the vast majority uh, of voters. Mayor Richard Arrington said in, in later years that the white people, many white people, simply abdicated their responsibilities with regard to uh, doing anything about segregation. And a quote, I think, that I, I recall is that uh, Arrington said, you know, Bull Connor didn't serve by coup he was elected by the voters of Birmingham. And and so I think uh, what that says is perhaps if there had been more support from broader sources, then Connor perhaps would have been, he would have been attuned to that, so to speak. But he loved the power of being the police commissioner and did what he knew to do to, to hold on to, the, to, to that power. And as Kennedy said, he, while not meaning to, probably did more for the civil rights movement than anybody since Abraham Lincoln. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Bill Nunley. He is the senior editor and director of public relations at Sanford University and the author of a very fine biography of the infamous Bull Connor. Thank you, Bill, for this very enlightening conversation. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed being with you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.